All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as your children. Thank you for creating the church, for giving us pastors and teachers, for designing the church to function in this way where we can rely on one another and learn from each other and even have support from each other as we go through this spiritual battle. We thank you for your grace and mercy toward us, even though we don't deserve it. And most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his selfless sacrifice on our behalf. Help us to never become familiar with this, Lord, so that we stay humble and we can bring you glory despite our flesh still existing. We ask that you bless this message, have your spirit guide us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, again, hindering God's love means hindering your sanctification, part two. On Sunday, the Spirit showed us a connection between faith and love, all the way back to Thursday, actually. And we saw, basically, that if love is not present, then what's your motivation to live by faith? If love is not present, if you don't understand God's love or appreciate God's love at all, then what's your motivation to walk by faith and follow Him? Why would you walk by faith unless you have some love for God, some real appreciation for who He is and what He's done for you? And let this give you some comfort. If you're listening to my voice right now and you do walk by faith, at least to some degree in your life, then that's a sign you do have some love for God. And at times in my life, I've wondered, do I, you know, do I have love for God? Do I, I don't feel it? All that kind of stuff. Maybe doubts being thrown at you by the kingdom of darkness. But if you walk by faith, to whatever degree that might be, you have some love for God or you wouldn't be walking by faith. You have some appreciation for God. So we might summarize it like this on the board. What motivates faith? The greater a person's love for God, the more willingly humble he will walk by faith. And just think about our series, uh, our series, our example lately, the Apostle Paul. Great example of this. The greater a person's love for God, the more willingly humble he will walk by faith. We also saw on Sunday that faith without love means nothing. Everyone has faith in something, but unless love binds that faith to serving others, it's worthless, as in 1 Corinthians 13. Why would we even want to serve others? Only if we have love for God are we going to even have that desire. That's the true motivation for any divinely good works. And from God's perspective, if love is not involved in your spiritual life, if that's not your motivation at all, then something is missing. And this is the principle that started this train of thought on Sunday. Why does faith move? The reason faith moves in our lives is because of love. Paul was a doer. I mean, maybe the greatest example of a doer in the New Testament that we can find. It was because love was his motivation. Go again to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Let's visit this one last time. 
2 Corinthians 5.14. The reason faith moves in our lives is because of love. And Paul was a doer because love was his motivation. I mean, love will make you do crazy things, right? We've all probably done crazy, silly things, extreme things because of love. And that's just a, a, a fleshly example even. So how much more in the spiritual realm? Paul was in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and was so grateful for his forgiveness. And so he was a doer. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see the motivation and the realization. When someone really personally realizes that he died for them, he's going to be motivated to live not for himself, but for him. That great display of love at the cross ends up motivating us to follow him. And that's why it's important that we recall our salvation every day, living in that gospel reality. That's why it's important that we uh, account for that every morning when we wake up. Let's recall the basics here. <laughs> I've been saved. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm nasty. I'm a jerk. Um, whatever you, wherever you want to go, think back to the day of your salvation and the realization that came upon you of your guiltiness and how Christ willingly saved you freely. So that's why that is vital to living our spiritual life even. And then the love of Christ can motivate us as well. We also saw on Sunday that Paul's humility led to a forgiving attitude towards others. Because of that, he regularly got out of the way and rarely hindered God's love from flowing through him, at least from what we know and see in the Scriptures. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15 again. Again, Paul's humility led to a forgiving attitude toward others. Because of that, he regularly got out of the way and rarely hindered God's love from flowing through him, at least from what we know in the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen. Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be, and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. A great example of accepting the calling. As we've heard from the Spirit for years now, we need to get out of the way. And this series is about not hindering God's love and the flow of God's love in our lives. Otherwise, we're squeezing His grace and power out of our lives, replacing it with human strength and power. And it's all our free will decision. It's all a decision which nature we live in, right? The old or the new. And that's going to determine how much of God's love we squeeze out of our lives. None of us is perfect, but we need to be aware that we're doing this kind of a thing, and it really is a big deal to God. Our Father's desire... God, being the one who sanctifies, he desires that we allow his love to flow through us 
unhindered and uninterrupted. And that's where humility comes in. If you're not humble like Paul and realize who you really are without Christ, you're going to get in the way. But humility will allow you to step out of the way and not hinder, not interrupt God's love with your own issues. As we saw on Sunday, when we hold on to our own methods of dealing with things and dealing with people, we get in the way. And we were challenged with some introspective questions on Sunday. And remember, as tough as these questions might be, the Spirit is using them to try to set us free. That's His heart. That's His objective. So again, let's be honest. In what ways are you using your own methods in dealing with others? Maybe something instilled in you since childhood. And in the process, you're hindering God's love from flowing freely. What's your go-to? Do you know what your go-to is? I would say we all have one, as subtle as it might be. And how does that hinder God's love from flowing in your life? And the Spirit encouraged us, be honest and objective. Don't get emotional. Don't get condemned. Step back. Honestly, what's your go-to? What's your defense mechanism that you fall into when you really don't want to deal with somebody or somebody hurts you? And if you can honestly step back and objectively see that, as God wants us to see it all as truth, you're going to be set free. You're going to, you're going to be able to move forward. Maybe you need to agree with God once you see it. Agree with Him that you're out of line and move on in the ways of the new nature. If you're humble enough to do so, you'll be able to live in more freedom and have a free-flowing love in your life. And there's nothing better than that. So talking about freely-flowing love, love is grace in action. And what is our part in this? To let it flow through us freely, both by receiving it from Him and passing it on to others. And it should all be one fluid motion, as we talked about on Sunday. One fluid motion. It's hard to describe, but that's where freedom lies. No hindrances caused by your reservations, by you, again, stepping in the way. You don't try to forgive people with your flesh. You try to forgive people with the Spirit. And you can even try to forgive people in your own power and think you've accomplished what God wants you to do, but you'll be harboring bitterness in some way. God wants his love to flow as one fluid motion, a free-flowing movement like a river. And as I mentioned on Sunday, uh, I picture myself standing in a river, freely, his love flows toward me, runs into me, and it flows around me and through me, you know, just as freely, as opposed to holding up that wooden plank and trying to halt the power of God's love for selfish reasons. In the new nature, you wouldn't want to do that, but in the old nature, you do, because the old nature likes to hoard, and the old nature likes to receive but not give. 
Deacon Don shared with me on Sunday after service. Think about how much energy it takes to hold up that wooden plank against the river. Against that constant, strong, rushing water. Why do that to yourself? In your flesh, you think you're doing something good or comforting even. For example, I don't have to forgive that person fully. But really, you're suffering and you're expending a lot of energy that God's like, if you just give up, it's going to feel a lot better. It's more exhausting to resist the flow of God's love than to accept it and allow it to flow on to others. Just like it's more exhausting to hold back forgiveness than to forgive someone from the heart. But who really wants freedom, right? We also acknowledged letting his love flow is easier with people we like. But how about people we don't really like? Or with people that have hurt us even? Well, let's quote Jesus on this issue. In Luke 6.32, he said, If you love those that love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. You might think you're living the spiritual life because you love your brother, for example. You know, especially those that you like in the church. But (laughs) what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those that love them. Even unbelievers love those that love them. So don't hold up the wooden plank even in the face of those who hurt you. Don't do it. It's to your own pain. It's to your own weariness. And they're the ones that need to see God's love the most. Just like you did at one time. Only when we get in the way, when we get selfish with God's grace, for example, it's for me and my benefit alone, then we slow down the powerful flow of his love through us. And we therefore slow down experiencing and enjoying our sanctification. So think about this for a minute. Only when we get in the way, when we get selfish with God's grace, uh, we think he's giving to us and we're supposed to just enjoy it all for ourselves. Then we slow down the powerful flow of his love through us as it's meant to be. And we therefore slow down experiencing and enjoying our sanctification. Our Heavenly Father wants us to enjoy the ride. As difficult as it is sometimes, what, what does the Bible say? Even in our sufferings, we can have joy. Supernatural. But it's a true statement. It's a, it's a divine perspective statement. Even in our sufferings, we can have joy. God wants us to enjoy the ride while we run the race. It's not supposed to be burdensome. So as burdensome as it is in your soul, that's how much you still got to grow, let's say, right? Because it's not supposed to be. There's a supernatural joy he gives us, but only that can only be experienced when we get out of the way. So again, to the degree that you're not able to experience joy and peace in the middle of trials, that's how much you're probably in the way. The faith of a child says this, 
I trust you, Lord, and I'm not going to question you anymore. That's how much I trust you. Think of a child. I trust you, Lord, I'm not even going to question you. This makes absolutely no sense. It's painful. I'm not even going to question you. Thank you. And it's with this kind of attitude that we can enjoy the freedom that God has meant for us to enjoy. No matter what the trial. I visited Frank in the hospital on Sunday, and this on the board is basically what he said to me. God's really been moving in his heart the last few years, as for many of you, I'm sure. And Frank said, in, you know, I'm paraphrasing, he said, I can see it all. I can see the whole thing for the first time in my life. And he's actually fine with the intense suffering he's going through right now. It's pretty awesome to see. And let me tell you, he's been in a lot of pain for many days. But, again, kind of in his words, he sees God pushing him, even to the brink, and then giving him a break, and then pushing him again. And he sees his own faith and trust increasing through it all. The unquestioning kind of faith, the one on the board. He's accepted what God is asking him to go through. He knows now what it means to trust God in any circumstance. And he stopped questioning him. And therefore, the inner joy and contentment he's experiencing, despite the pain. I'm sure our Heavenly Father is pretty happy to see that in him. It's a supernatural thing. And maybe it's because Frank realizes and believes God's love for him now more than ever in his life. And he's basically said that to me over the years, too, as I sit next to him on Sundays usually. He's just seeing things differently and his faith has been increased. But it really comes back to God's love. You know, why do we have faith? Why does faith do? Because love is the motivation. So again, about the power of God's love, it's love that changes people. And it's lack of love that makes ourselves and others suffer needlessly. I've heard many stories, you know, of believers that acted in a certain way towards unbelievers. And the unbeliever just couldn't understand it. You know, like flabbergasted, like, will you stop helping me? I'm your enemy, basically. And that display of love changes people's hearts. It wakes them right up. I remember one story real quick of an evangelist, a young man who thought he was an evangelist. Um, I forget the country. But he went into this uh, territory, this neighborhood that wasn't a good territory to be in, but he wanted to evangelize. He loved the Lord so much that he wanted to evangelize these people that that he knew were going to give him a hard time. And there was this group of people, I think it was about five people, five men, that basically said, you know, we're going to kill you. You come back here again, we're going to kill you. Get out of our village. And out of fear, he left. And a few days later, he came back to those same men. And he was outnumbered, he was outmanned and all that. And they said to him, why are you coming back? We told you we're going to kill you. And he just broke down and said, listen, I love you. I love you. You don't understand. I want you to be saved, blah, 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 blah. And he ended up starting a church right there. And those five men were like his 
right-hand man. But that kind of love, unexplainable. And that's the point on the board. It's love that changes people. And then when we get in the way and we lack love, it, we make ourselves suffer and others suffer needlessly. Thank God he's patient with us, though. So this truth on the board, it permeates all areas of life. It's like yeast in the dough in a good way. It gets through the whole dough if you allow it to enter your life. And that's what, where the power is. The Spirit also had us consider what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord could have simply commanded us to love our neighbors, and that would have been enough. But by adding in the words, as yourself, that changes everything. We talked about how much do you love yourself, right? You care for yourself, don't you? You take care of yourself. Doesn't your life include caring for yourself, making your life easier when possible, and giving yourself the best things like good food or clothing, for example, and relief from pain, for example? Well, if that's how you treat yourself, Jesus is saying that's the exact same way you should treat your neighbors. That's God's love. It's totally unselfish. And looking at others as just as valuable and important as yourself. And even more so in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a state of mind. We're going to get to that. But notice, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Without humility, it won't happen. But if you want freedom, there it is right there. The Spirit brought up on Sunday, you're not as important as you think you are, by the way. According to this passage in Philippians 2, if you honestly realize and admit that you are nothing without Christ, and I mean nothing, John 15, 5 says, Jesus said, abide in me, and without me you can do nothing. If you honestly realize and admit that you're nothing without Christ, then you're ready to move forward and enjoy this freedom, which comes from regarding others as a higher priority than yourself. But until you humble yourself, you will continue to suffer in your soul. Obeying the command to love your neighbor as yourself is a big part of allowing God's love to flow through you. Now, what's the next step in godly thinking regarding loving your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? And this came up months ago, you might remember. This passage we're going to go through came up months ago, and the same question came up. Who is your neighbor? Do you really want to know is my question to you. Do you really want the answer? A lawyer tested Jesus with this question in hopes of limiting the number of people he was required to love. Don't we all do that, if we're honest? 
Hmm. Picking and choosing who we love, it's a heck of a lot easier. But as the Lord said, your neighbor isn't just the guy that you know next door. Here's what the Lord ended up saying. He ended up saying, be a neighbor. Don't ask who your neighbor is. That's the wrong question. Be a neighbor. That's how he answered this lawyer's question. Go to Luke 10, verse 25. But that's what lawyers do, right? They ask bad questions. They ask leading questions. And the Spirit's even said this to to us the last couple weeks. Don't be a lawyer. Don't be that person that thinks that way. It's really just looking for a way out. Instead, let's be the humble good neighbor, even to those who are not our own people. Look at Luke 10, 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put them on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Did Jesus answer his question? Who is my neighbor? He didn't. He said, go be a neighbor. And it didn't matter who the person was that was in need. It wasn't even someone the Samaritan knew. So instead of worrying about who qualifies as our neighbor, we should focus on being a neighbor. Does that sound familiar? The Spirit emphasized this about a month ago, about being the right person being the new nature, being sanctified. In fact, here's a point from a lesson in March regarding living the spiritual life. Living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regimen. What do we see in Philippians chapter 2? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
Living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regiment. It's being in Christ in the moment, not just knowing it, although that precedes being. We sense his presence in everything. So be the neighbor. Be in the sphere of love. Regarding our subject, we have a free will. We can choose to allow God's love to flow freely, or we can choose to get in the way. Just as powerfully as you want God's love to flow to you, I'm sure you do, that's how powerfully God wants you to let it flow to others around you, even if it's not your own peeps. Even if it's not people you know, like whatever. A Samaritan and a Jew, that's as bad as it gets. Maybe especially if it's not your own people, should we walk in love. So we need to stop getting in the way of God's love because of selfish reasons, like our own feelings, like bitterness or resentment because someone legitimately hurt you. It's okay to be hurt. It's human to be hurt. It's not a sin to be hurt. It's a sin to hold it against people, to be resentful and not forgive, which is what our main passage is all about. But if you let it go, if you let it flow freely to others in your life, just like it freely was given to you, you'll be free. And always remember, not only do you not deserve the forgiveness you got, but you might be the one beaten on the side of the road next time. Encouraging message, huh? But flowing freely is what we're talking about. I mean, this is where freedom lies. God's love is a passionate river, and we are to stand in its path with open arms and to receive it and to let it flow through us to others uninterrupted, and unhindered. So we're looking at two main passages this week that illustrate God's love and its potential godly flow in us or the potential of us stopping it. It depends on our humility and submission to God's ways. Not man's ways, God's ways. And if we're willingly humble. For example, we talked about on Sunday, who are we? to not forgive our brother who has sinned against us. Who are we? Do we have a right to not forgive our brother? On the board, regarding forgiving our brother, if our attitude is, Lord, do I have to forgive this person? You're asking the wrong question in your soul. Maybe it should be, Lord, I want to obey you. How do I forgive this person? If we do choose to forgive others, despite our personal pain, then we're being humble. We're acknowledging how much he forgave us, and we're operating in his love. And we're the ones that reap the benefits. We're the ones that are set free in that process. But it takes humility. Another example that came up and that will come up uh, later in this series, who are we to choose not to love our enemies. That's what Jesus calls us to. 
what right do we have to say no to God's ways of love? Since he's the author of love. It's not like you can have another brand of love that's legitimate. He's the author of love. So who are we to try to operate it in, a, in another way? When he tells you, this is the way my love works. God loves us with that same exact type of love that he's asking us to apply to others. And again, he's not asking us to do something he hasn't already done himself at the cross. So regarding hindering sanctification, you have to be honest. Do you want the benefits of his love, but then want to hold back those same benefits from others in your life? If that's you, then be on guard because there's a price to pay. And God takes this very seriously. Again, his ways are not our ways, and that includes, includes in how to love. Go to Isaiah 55, and let's read this popular passage uh, with a couple more verses in there to give us a little more context. And allow this to humble yourself and to remind yourself that your thoughts are nothing compared to his thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If God's ways and thoughts are forgiveness and compassion... Who are we to stay living in unrighteous ways and thoughts, like lack of forgiveness or lack of love for the guilty? Who are we to stay in those unrighteous ways? That's what they are, even though we have a legitimate reason to feel a certain way. Um, it's really not legitimate. It's okay to be hurt again, but it's not okay to be resentful. Again, if God's ways and thoughts are forgiveness and compassion, who are we to stay in unrighteous ways and thoughts, not forgiving or loving those who are guilty? And we're talking about doing this to our own harm. How stupid of us. But what makes you stupid is arrogance. That's what makes us stupid. If we're humble, we won't have to harm ourselves. If we're arrogant, it makes you dumb, even though you know the truth. So until we humble ourselves, we will continue to suffer in our soul, and that's what our main passage revealed to us. So again, regarding hindering sanctification, if we choose not to love our enemies, we hurt ourselves, stunting our own sanctification and stopping the flow of God's love to those who really need it, those who are sick and those who are lost without Christ. Is there anyone who needs God's love more than our enemies? 
who even attack God. Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're the ones that needed to see him say that. Those five arrogant men in that village are the ones that needed to see that young man come back and basically sacrifice himself, risk his own life. Remember, Jesus came to lead sinners to repentance. Sinners. So in these passages we look at, let's remember that. Go again to Matthew 18, verse 21. This is our first of two major passages in this little study. And these are the two passages that God put on my heart like a month ago. And um, there's a great illustration. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt, the whole debt. But that same slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. That's a horrible word right there. He was unwilling. Arrogant. He wasn't willingly humble. He didn't receive the love from the Lord and then pass it right on. He held it back for himself. He was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he could pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Again, this is to remind us what a great debt God has forgiven us of compared to a small, minuscule debt that he asks us to forgive our brother of, regardless of what it is. To put this in perspective, as I mentioned on Sunday, the total revenue of the town of Galilee was 300 talents. And this man owed his Lord 10,000 talents. So the whole idea, the Lord spoke it this way 
that it's an unattainable number. And then the slave wouldn't forgive his fellow slave of a few hundred bucks. The Lord is showing us the immeasurable disparity between what he's forgiven us and what he's asking us to do for those that hurt us. So may we never lose sight of the mercy of God like this unfortunate slave did. Even if you've been truly hurt by another, it pales in comparison to the innumerable sins you've committed against your heavenly Father. And he's forgiven you all of them. Remember what Joseph said in the Old Testament when he was tempted to sleep with uh, his master's wife? He said, shall I commit this sin against my God? What was he saying? He's saying against my God that forgave me all those things. Should I sin against my perfect heavenly father that has cleansed my record completely? And that there's the humility. That's what motivates you. The love of God motivates us to walk by faith. Joseph walked by faith because he was truly humble, because he appreciated and understood the love of God. And that overcame many temptations. So there are several things to take note of in this passage, starting with the fact that forgiveness and mercy allows God's love to flow. Forgiveness and mercy allows God's love to flow. Notice how it should have gone straight from God to the slave to the other slave in one fluid movement. That slave shouldn't have thought twice, right? But he, he turned to his flesh. Shouldn't even been a thought compared to what he was just forgiven. And when we hold it back from others, we damage our own soul and hinder his flow of mercy from reaching other people, even though we just received it from God and continue to receive it. So we saw on Sunday that we're also going to be accountable to the Father. And Jesus makes a shocking statement at the end of this parable. And another heart issue is brought up as well. On the board, we are accountable to the Father. This is so serious to God the Father that Jesus says, whoever, whoever does not forgive his brother from his heart will be severely disciplined by the Father. It's like being handed over to the torturers in Matthew 18, 34, and 35. This might be torture in the soul. If that, that's what I would think it is, but who knows exactly. God knows what will hurt us. God knows what will pain us and what we need to wake up. Um, it could be his conscience bearing witness against him by the Holy Spirit. Discipline from God is something we should expect from our Heavenly Father when we disobey His ways. His ways. Now we're talking about His ways of love. There's really only one way. His way to love is the only way to love. In love, God will try to wake us up and get us back on the right path, even if it means harsh discipline. Look again at verse 34 and 35. And His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
And here's another reminder that God looks at the heart in everything, in all parts of life, you know. Don't pigeonhole that to a certain part of life, you know, where God said it to David, you know, David was going to challenge Goliath. He said, there's a man after my own heart, right? God looks at the heart. He's the leader, even though he's not the tall one, the strong one, the this, the that. God looks at the heart. But don't pigeonhole that concept to that one scene, which I used to do years ago. There are a lot, of, a lot of examples of this in the scriptures, and this is one of them regarding forgiving your brother from your heart. And we can't pretend. So if you're having trouble forgiving, if you're harboring bitterness, even though you may have thought you forgave somebody, if you're harboring bitterness in your soul, then you need to go to God with it right away. Go to your father. And this is why we must go straight to him when we lack the proper attitude on anything, but especially forgiveness. This is so serious to God. We must go ask him for more faith because that's the issue when we resist his instructions, including not forgiving our brother from the heart. We must get on our knees and ask him for help right then for supernatural help for giving our brother from the heart. You know how it goes. You have a thought, you have a sense, you have a conviction that God wants you to do something, but instead of stopping right then and taking care of it, you keep walking on your way. And you say, I'll get to it later. Or I don't really want to get to it right now. Whatever. We all have that scenario. I mean, it's all a little different in each of our souls, I'm sure, the way it works. But I know it happens to me. Am I going to address this conviction that I just had? Or am I going to ignore it and keep walking? So what the Spirit's emphasizing here is the sense of urgency. If you have this problem of bitterness, resentment, whatever, stop walking. Get on your knees, go to your Father in humility, and cry out. and Be like, I can't do this. I want to get rid of this. I can't do this. And this is so, so vital to our spiritual walk. Otherwise, we're holding back his love. So there are going to be times in any church that your brother in Christ, intentionally or unintentionally, will hurt you in some way. Your family members, not even your enemies, will give in to their flesh at times for selfish gain, especially if they're not focused on the Word and they're focused on loving self, right? Taking care of their own needs. They're going to legitimately harm you at times and cause you pain and suffering. And that's when we will be challenged to allow God's love to flow through us or to bottle it up in resentment. The Lord takes this matter so seriously because it's His love that we're stopping the flow of. It's like we have no business stepping in the way of His grace and mercy. And that's what we do when we don't forgive. So before we go on to our second major passage in this study, uh, let's look at more scripture about God looking at the heart. I want you to see a few things as we close here in the last 10 minutes. That God looks at our heart in every area of our lives, no matter what we're doing. The heart is what determines if we're acting godly or in pretense. Again, the heart 
is what determines if we're acting godly or in pretense. And this is not only with what was stated about David in 1 Samuel. Go to Proverbs 21, verse 1. We're going to look at a few verses that give us a glimpse here, again, of of the, the importance of the heart. And this has everything to do with the flow of God's love in our lives. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. There's a passage to mull over for a while. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way, here we are again to ways, right? Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The message to us is forgive your brother from the heart. On the board in Jeremiah 3, verse 10 in the NIV, it says, In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart but only in pretense, declares the Lord. That's where the word pretending comes from. Judah did not return to me with all her heart, only in pretense. There you see clearly God looks at the heart and won't accept a substitute. Judah played the part in this verse and acted like she wanted to return to God, but she truly didn't. So we can pretend to forgive our brother in pretense, but God knows the heart. Again, the message to us, forgive your brother from the heart. Stop playing games. Go to Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8. Zechariah 7, verse 8. Near the end of the Old Testament. That's why, you know, this spiritual life is a relationship. I mean, we've come a long way from substituting academics as a relationship for many of us. That was our relationship, and we thought we were mature because we had a lot of knowledge. And this is really the opposite. God's saying, listen, I look at the heart. I'd rather have the guy with limited knowledge that follows me from the right perspective and right motivation than the opposite. So Zechariah 7, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. We have a lot of words in this verse about this lesson here, don't we? Stop their ears from hearing. 
They made their hearts like flint. That's like stone. So that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent his sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Great wrath. And by the way, the Lord of hosts means the Lord of the armies. What do we just read in the parable that the Lord said with the slave who didn't forgive his brother? My father will hand you over to the torturers, in essence. Great wrath came from the Lord of hosts because they hardened their hearts. They didn't, in our, in our study, forgive their brother from their heart. So suffering is in order and discipline is necessary when we harden our hearts against our brothers. Go to Luke 16, verse 14. Just a couple more passages. Luke 16, 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. In other words, you're pretenders, Pharisees, justifying yourselves in the sight of men. You can fool men, but you can't fool God, because God knows your hearts. What's the message to us again on the board? Forgive your brother from your heart. Go to James 3, verse 13. It's so easy for us to play games with God. So easy. And we, we get caught up into a certain pattern in our lives so that we almost block it out and we don't recognize we're doing it. Right? This is the way I live my spiritual life. And we uh, hinder his love in the process. Uh, James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. And in verse 17, notice, be full of mercy. Isn't that forgiveness? Be full of mercy. Let it overflow. Err on the side of grace. If you're not sure what to do in a situation, 
you know, do I, do I be extra gracious or do I hold back? If you're really not sure, err on the side of grace. Let it flow. Let it overflow. Be full of mercy. You can't lose. Even if you make the wrong decision, if you're full of mercy, if that's your heart, God knows it and he's going to take care of you. So where do we harbor bitterness? According to this verse, it's in our heart. When we don't forgive others, we allow bitterness into our hearts. And maybe that's part of the torturers our Father hands us over to. We end up destroying ourselves when we don't truly forgive our brother. And go to James 4, verse 6. James 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Our hearts are not pure when we hold back forgiveness. Because that's holding back God's love and God's mercy. Again, the point on the board, forgive your brother from your heart. Let's go to one last verse. Revelation 2, verse 21. Right on time. Revelation 2, 21. Our hearts are not pure when we hold back forgiveness. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Just like our main passage. I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. God knows the heart. And whether we're surrendering or pretending. So let's repent from the heart and not require God's discipline to come and correct us. Forgive your brother from your heart. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for even the sternness in your love. We thank you that you're a good, faithful father, that you don't let us get away with anything to our own harm. And we thank you for the discipline you do give us to bring us around the corner to freedom and to help us become more humble. Father, help us take these truths we've learned out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask your blessing to be upon all of us as we leave tonight. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.